I'm going to ask you to take your Bible this morning to James chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I want to catch uh, many of you up today on something that happened in our service last Sunday. I know many of you were gone. Our college students were gone on spring break. Welcome back, by the way. And uh, many of our families were away on spring break uh, with their uh, with their high schoolers and other uh, family opportunities that came up. And we're so glad that you had an opportunity to be away. We're, we're so glad you're back. So thank you for coming. We're looking forward to our Easter uh, events that are coming up, our Easter extravaganza, our outreach that Pastor Brian and uh, Garrett Martin are doing. I know we'll be doing some training uh, with that here in uh, after our service this morning, after our, our preaching service. And, uh, and then Easter Sunday is coming up. Uh, we have a good Friday service, a lot of things going on for Easter. And I hope you're making your plans to be here. I hope you'll take the time to invite somebody in your neighborhood or maybe somebody you work with that doesn't have a place to worship on Easter Sunday. There will be a gospel message on Easter Sunday. So please plan to be here and bring someone who needs uh, reason to celebrate the joy of the resurrection that we, uh, we observe on that day. So looking forward to all of that. And on Easter Sunday, we're going to be doing something special in relation to what happened last week. Uh, so let me catch all of you up that weren't here. Uh, as pastors, we began to get burdened about the need for uh, God's people that they're facing in both Ukraine and in Russia. And if you've been watching the news, you are well aware that that conflict continues to escalate and, uh, and that there's just a ton of devastation. I was watching the news last night and uh, looking at some of the effects that have happened in the war-torn cities of the Ukraine and the bombing that has happened there. And I realize, and we acknowledged this last Sunday, that there are a lot of politics behind all of that. And uh, even God's people have different ideas about what gave rise to that and what might be a potential solution. And we're setting all of that aside. We're not minimizing that. We're realizing that those are, that's a part of how you process things. But that's really not what we're involved in. Our concern is that there are brothers and sisters in Christ, both in Ukraine and in Russia, who are suffering immensely. And there's a lot of interest uh, even even in uh, people who don't know the Lord or would be would not be professing Christians to do something, uh, let let's let's show some sign of solidarity. And so we felt like, man, is there a way as a church that we could do more than that? And so I reached out to uh, a pastor who pastors a Slavic church, Word of Life Slavic Baptist Church in Spartanburg. And uh, his name is Sergei Minka. And uh, I found out that his congregation is comprised of people both from Ukraine and Russia. It may surprise you to know that there is an unusually large population of Ukrainian-Russian people, Slavic people, here in the upstate. And he pastors a church with about 400 of them. And they are reaching back into the Ukraine and into Russia uh, to minister to the Christians that have been affected by this. And they work with 22 different congregations in Ukraine. Uh, he began to share with us, uh, and he came on Sunday and actually preached here this past week. Um, we were not able to live stream that 
service, so I do apologize for those of you who would like to have seen it. I wish we could have done that. Um, but basically, he works with uh, 22 congregations, and he shared with us some stunning information. By the time this com- conflict is over, there, there are estimates that more than a million children will have been displaced from their families and from their parents. Either their parents will have been killed in the conflict or they will have been lost. And even last night I was watching the news and here is a mom on a, on a train begging people to help her find her son. And there are homes that have been completely destroyed. Uh, he shared with us that in the cities that have been most affected by this, there are now corridors uh, humanitarian corridors uh, that, that people are using to escape to other parts of the Ukraine or out of the Ukraine. And it is the Christians who are remaining in those cities who are manning those corridors and driving the, the vehicles that are taking people uh, to safety. And he shared with us the immense needs. And so um, we began to pray. And, uh, and here's what we're doing as a church. And here's where I'm challenging you today. There are three things we're doing. Number one, we want to establish a partnership with a trusted ministry that can point us to ways in which we can tangibly be uh, real help in the Ukraine and among the Slavic people because it's going on in Russia as well. It's not just in Ukraine. And Pastor Minka was that link for us. And so we are now exploring ways. Pastor Brian and other members of uh, the pastoral team are, are looking for ways to establish a strong partnership with Word of Life uh, Baptist or Slavic Baptist Church in Spartanburg. So how can we do that? Uh, number two, we believe that God would have us uh, partner economically in the short term. So we would like to raise some money out of our congregation that we can give to Pastor Minka to help these 22 ministries do gospel aid in the Ukraine. And he shared that with you. And so I shared with all of our folks that were here last week that that is really our goal. Over the next four months, we would love to see 100 people in this congregation rise to a challenge. And the challenge is this. If 100 people in this congregation, I look around, there are probably four or 500 of us here this morning. If 100 people in this congregation would, would say to the Lord, Lord, above my giving above my tithe and my offering, if you will supply this amount of money, I'll give it. This is, this is grace-enabled gospel giving. We're acknowledging, God, we don't have this to give. It's not in our giving plan. But if you provide it, I want to be the channel through which it is given. And I'm going to ask you, God to provide that money. And if a hundred of us would just say to the Lord, Lord, if you would supply a hundred dollars a month over the next four months, imagine what we could give to Pastor Minka to use with these 22 churches that are doing gospel work. It's an amazing opportunity. So that's what I'm challenging you to do. You say, well, I don't know that I could do a hundred dollars a month or $25 a week, but I think I could do $50 a month. You know, I could give up Starbucks for four months and I could take all the money that I would normally spend on Starbucks and I would be willing to give that to this effort. Or maybe you work in some kind of a, uh, in an industry where you receive gratuities or tips and you could say, you know, one day a week, 
I'm going to take the gratuities from that day and I'm going to give that to this fund. There might be some creative ways. Maybe you're a college student and $100 a month is just not at all what you can even envision. Well, what could you envision God giving you? Maybe you're a teenager here. Maybe you're a child. And maybe in your mind, if God would just give you $10, if God would supply $10 to you in some way, you would give that. So here's what I want you to do. That's what this little card is, okay? We don't normally do this. This is not normally how we do giving here. But for this project, we're introducing something called grace-enabled gospel giving. And so you each have a card. I hope all of you have one. If you didn't, get it at the table on the way out. And this week, here's what I want you to do. I want each of you to go home and pray. And I want you to sit down in your quiet time with the Lord and say, God, what would you have me ask you for? Because I don't have it. So what would you have me ask you for? What, what would you help me to believe you could supply for me? What could you have me ask you for? And whatever that is, put it down on this card. We're not going to ask you to sign the card. This isn't going to come in and it's not going to go somewhere and we're not going to come knocking on your door. This is you and God, but this also will give us an opportunity to know kind of how we can help Pastor Minka sort of prepare over the next four months. And so uh, next Sunday, we're going to uh, hand the cards out again in case you forgot. Uh, And at the end of our service next Sunday, we're going to collect them, okay? So please uh, go home, put this in your Bible, and uh, and all of you, husbands, wives, children, this is an individual thing. God, what would you put in my heart that I should ask you for? Maybe it's $5. Maybe it's $500. I don't know what that number will be, but it is whatever God puts on your heart to ask him for that will stretch your faith and cause you to depend on him That's what grace-enabled giving is, and it's for gospel advancement. So it's grace-enabled gospel giving. We'll collect these cards on Sunday. And then on Easter Sunday, two weeks from now, we are going to take a special offering for Project Above and Beyond. That's what we're calling this initiative, Project Above and Beyond. So Easter Sunday, we are going to take a special offering. And uh, whatever comes in in that offering, we're going to give to Project Above and Beyond unless you designate it otherwise, okay? And we're going to do something unusual here. And I want to make sure you are ready for this because I don't want you to think, oh, boy, they're changing everything here. This is not. We're just going to do something very unusual on Easter Sunday. We're actually going to take an offering in our morning service. Now, you remember here, we don't normally do that. We don't pass plates here. And, uh, and we're not intending to go in that direction uh, anytime soon. There are, there are three ways in which you give here at Palmetto. There's, there's offering boxes at the back. And uh, on your way out, many of our people put their offering in the offering box. Sometimes people mail it in. There are numbers of you that mail it in to our church office. And then most of you give electronically. You can give online. And you, you can go to our app or you can go online. And so most of you just do regular giving like that. And we're so thankful that you do. Thank you for the way in which you give. I, I'm just so amazed at the faithfulness of your giving and so encouraged by it, as, as are all the pastors. This is above and beyond that. So we're going to take a special offering on Easter Sunday in honor of the Lord's gift to us, the resurrection and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we want that gift 
to go to uh, Ukraine and to Russia, to the believers that are suffering there. So that's what's coming. You go home and you pray and you ask what God would have you to give. In fact, let's take a moment and do that now. Would you bow your head with me and let's pray together. Lord, thank you that uh, you move in our lives and in our hearts corporately. Thank you that we have come to this place where you have caused us to desire to help your people in Ukraine and in Russia who are suffering. And many of them, the loss of economic sustainability, the loss of homes, the loss of jobs, the loss of food, uh, the loss of medication, the loss of safety, and some even have lost their lives. And we sit here this morning in relative safety and in relative comfort. Most of us will leave here with our children and head to a restaurant or go home and we'll eat food and we'll live in the security and in safety. And there are brothers and sisters around the world this morning in Russia and Ukraine who have none of that. Some of them have lost their children. They're desperately seeking to find them. Some of them have lost their homes. Some of them are without food or without clothing. Some of them, Lord, are desperate and they're calling out to you for help. And around the world, you are touching the lives of your people and you are moving your people to set aside things that would be nice to have because you're moving in their hearts to take that and to use it for gospel purposes and people who are calling out across the world for it. And so, Lord, we want to be a part of that. Lord, if it, if it would please you, would you do a work through our congregation that would remind us that with our weak and small means, you can do great and mighty things. Lord, we dare to come and ask you to do above and beyond anything we could ask or think. But Lord, we can only do that if you enable us. This cannot come out of guilt. This cannot come because we have emotionally moved the hearts of people. This has to come because you are building and strengthening the faith of your people. So Lord, as each of us come before you in the next seven days to ask you about this, would you tailor make in each of our lives, what you want to do to grow us and to develop our faith in you. We'll pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, we are going to uh, return to James this morning. And, uh, and here's what I want to do. I, I, we're getting ready to head into a very, very difficult part of the book. You'll remember that James is writing to the very first church in the world. I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ came, he appeared, he announced the dawn of a new day and began doing what he told Peter and the disciples he would do in Matthew 16. He began to gather his church. And 15 years later, the first pastor of the first church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem writes the very first letter in our New Testament. The very first time in 400 years that God had given any kind of inspired revelation to his people is coming out of the pen of James. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of set it up by telling you a story and then driving you to a set of questions that I think will kind of help us as we go along. Because here's the thing we want to ask ourselves. How are we going to respond 
when James starts touching areas in our life that are very, very personal? How are we going to respond when God begins to use the pen of James to go at things in our life that are getting in the way of the mission that God has for our lives? And so that's kind of where we're at. You know, we've been kind of running through James chapter 1, and, and we've been sort of like climbing a mountain, and now we're sort of at this place where there's this outlook, and it's like James sits us down, and he says, now before we get going on the rest of the journey, I need to get you ready for what you're about to hear, because what you're about to hear is going to be disconcerting, and it is going to be very, very personal. And James knows, as a pastor, what happens when you get deeply, deeply personal in the life of people. What do you think happens when a pastor gets up close and personal in areas of your life where all of a sudden you are being confronted about things? What can happen? And and all of us know this, right? All of us know that when a pastor does that, there's a great risk. And the risk is that the person hearing what the pastor has to say is going to reject that message, is going to kind of shut the message down, and if the message continues to come and continues to penetrate, then that person just walks away. And James is writing to people who are about to face that. I mean, he is going to come, and by the time you get to to the end of the letter, James is going to actually say things to them like this. You are a spiritual adulterer. You are involved in an affair. And the affair has disrupted your marriage to Christ. Now think about that. He didn't start that in verse 2 of chapter 1, right? But by the time you get to chapter 4, that is really what he's saying. So how does James get a congregation ready for that kind of direct talk? And that's what we want to look at this morning. When I was a teenager, I encountered a series of books that fascinated me. And the the series of books uh, were sort of in this, uh, they had a title. They were called The Chronicles of Narnia. How many of you have heard of The Chronicles of Narnia? Can I see your hands? How many of you have read any of The Chronicles of Narnia? How many of you have seen the three movies that have been put out by the Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, so a lot of you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis wrote those in the 40s, right? So he wrote these in the 40s. They were published in the 50s, so they've been around for a very, very long time. And, And the core of the story has to do with four children who lived in one world who found a portal into another. And they go into this other world and they find a world that belongs to a royal lion named Aslan. And the the, the whole chronicle rises really on the first three books. I mean, if you really want to get the storyline of Narnia, it's in the first three books. And then the rest of the books sort of go back and fill in the history and the back history and and who people are. And and it's a fascinating little series of books. I I just still remember uh, reading those books as a teen and the impact that they had on my life. The first of those books is a book that I'm sure you've heard about, The Lion, the Witch, and the 
wardrobe because the wardrobe is the portal into that world. And there are four children who are in this world who go into Narnia and, uh, and in that story you find a land that is under an ancient curse. And, and that ancient curse will be broken only when an even more ancient prophecy has been fulfilled. And the prophecy is this, the ancient curse will be broken and freedom will come to Narnia when two sons of Adam and two sons of Eve arrive. And so the whole first book is about these four sons of Adam and daughters of Eve that come, and by the end of the book, they are in service to this royal lion, Aslan, and I won't spoil it if you haven't read it, but by the end of the book, they have been very instrumental in the breaking of this ancient curse and the dawning of a new age in Narnia. And then they go back to their world. And 1,300 years passes in the other world. 1,300 years passes in Narnia. And the second book picks the story up when these four children come back to Narnia. And it's 14 or 1,300 years later. And the freedom that had been won by them in the first book uh, has now been threatened. And so... Uh, By the end of the first book, they were the kings and queens of Narnia. Peter was the high king. And so now these kings and queens come back, and their job is to protect the freedom that had been won in the first book and to regather the Narnians that had lost that freedom and to reestablish the rightful king, Caspian, on the throne of Narnia. So the second book is called Prince Caspian. And, uh, and then the third book, sort of the final book in the storyline, is a book about two of those children coming back a third time, and this time they come on a, on a ship. And the ship they are on is called the Dawn Treader. And so the name of the book is The Journey or The, uh, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And their mission is to take the freedom that has come to Aslan's kingdom, Narnia, and to extend it to the darkest, remotest regions of that world. And so they have all these adventures, and by the time you get to the end of the third book, freedom isn't just now in Narnia, it's in all parts of Aslan's kingdom. All right, so that's the storyline. You see, what in the world does that have to do with James? Man, I'm glad you like the... Chronicles of Narnia, but but what does that have to do with with James? And I think it has more to do with James than you might think. James is writing to people who have been called to extend the dawn of a new age to the remotest parts of the world. You'll remember in the Old Testament that From the days of Adam, there was a particular son of Adam that would appear, and when he appeared, the curse would be reversed. Sin would be dealt with. The law would be fulfilled. People would be saved from their sins. And by the time James is writing, that has happened. 
And people have been called out of the kingdom of darkness and they have now been made part of this new and glorious kingdom. And that's where James begins. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at how James sets up the narrative for us. And I I want us to answer five simple questions. Here they are. Question number one. Who are these people that James is talking about? And you can see it in verse 1. James says, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. You say, okay, we, we kind of talked about that at the very beginning. So, so let's just remind ourselves as we look to what, where James is headed, let's just remind ourselves who, who is he writing to, all right? Now think about this. When was the last time, before James was writing, when was the last time the 12 tribes had been together as one nation? And the last time that had been true was in the reign of a man named Solomon. It's like 730 years earlier. I mean, that's the last time the 12 tribes had been together. And when was the last time the 12 tribes that were now broken apart were in the same geographical land? And the answer to that was in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians came and dispersed them. And for the rest of your Old Testament, for seven long centuries, the 12 tribes of Israel had not been together and they had not been in their land. And all of a sudden, James says to the 12 tribes, something massive has happened. Somebody has appeared and somebody has introduced the dawn of a new age. Somebody has come and done exactly what the Old Testament prophets said would happen. In Ezekiel, for example, Ezekiel 37, God said, I will take the sons of Israel from the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side, and I will bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation. And that same thing is repeated in Zechariah 10, chapter 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will deliver the house of Joseph and I will bring them back because I have had compassion on them and they will be as though I had not rejected them. Somebody is going to come and reunite the tribes and regather them and reestablish them. And James is looking at people and he is saying to them, You are part of that regathered people, which means that somebody has come. Somebody has appeared. Somebody has introduced the dawn of a new age, and that person is Jesus. It's Messiah. And so James is saying, look, I'm writing to people who have now been regathered as God's new people and who are now part of of God's new kingdom. But there's an interesting thing James wants you to pick up. Those people that have been regathered and are now part of God's new kingdom, where are they? They are dispersed, which means that the kingdom that they're going to be in hasn't arrived yet. The king has come, 
and he has gathered his people, but the kingdom hasn't come yet. Which, by the way, is why Jesus encourages his people to pray, thy kingdom, what? Come. So here is what James is doing. He's writing to a group of people, and these people are part of a new kingdom that he has established, and they are living in all the little kingdoms of the world. So, so that's you and me. We are part of a majestic new day that has come. We are, we are the announcers. We are the treaders out of the dawn of a new age. Because Messiah has come in the person of Jesus Christ, but the kingdom that he is bringing hasn't yet arrived. And so you and I, as the announcers of a new dawn, of a new age, live in all the kingdoms of the world that are still in darkness. And so what is the mission of these people? And the mission is this. They are to be the royal ambassadors of the kingdom of Jesus to all the little kingdoms in which they live. Right now, there are a ton of them that are being called to live as royal ambassadors in Ukraine. They're being called to live as royal ambassadors in Russia. You and I are being called to live as royal ambassadors in the country where we reside. And all of these little kingdoms... Ukraine and Russia and China and Korea and South Korea, North Korea, United States, England, France, all of them make up one dark kingdom, the kingdom of this world. Do you get the picture? You and I are the new Don Treaders. We're the, uh, we're the true Don Treaders. We are the ones taking the dawn to these dark kingdoms. And that's really the third thing that that James talks about is how do we do this? How do we accomplish this amazing mission? And the answer is we do that by displaying the beauty and the power of the gospel to change lives. We We are to embrace the ethic of the new kingdom, the moral of the new kingdom, and we are to display the beauty of that kingdom through our life. So as you live all around the globe, you live in the darkened kingdoms of the world, you become a point of light. In fact, that's what Jesus talked about, right? He said, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. You become a point of light. And wherever you are in the world, your mission is not to be safe. Your mission is not to be comfortable. Your mission is not to be successful. Your mission is to be light. Your mission is to be salt in a very spiritually dark and morally dangerous place. If you think the Christian life is all about being safe and secure and comfortable, James is about to rock your world. He's about to explode that. If you think that Jesus Christ came into the world to make your life better, to make your family better, to make your marriage better, if you think the reason you have a Bible in your hand is so that you can have a better life, a more prosperous life, then James is going to absolutely bring you to a place where, where every piece of that is going to be shaken to its core. 
James is actually going back to Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, and he is saying to each of us, the king has placed you in the most strategic place he can think of for you to spend your life, and your mission in that place is to display in your life the beauty of the morals and the ethics and the freedom of the new kingdom to people who have no desire for it and who are hostile to it. That's a very, very different mission than most of us think about. That's what I'm saying. James is sitting us down before he gets like right into that, and he's going, now, you know, I just want to make sure you understand where we're headed. He's doing what a good pastor does. So how in the world are they going to accomplish this mission? Because there's a danger to the mission, right? The danger is this. The danger is that when you go into this world and you live in this way, here's the danger. You are going to cultivate a divided heart. That over time, whatever kingdom you live in is going to have values. It's going to have images of success. It's going to have attractions. It's going to have things that people live for. And you're part of a different kingdom. You're part of the glorious kingdom of Christ. And you have a whole different set of things that you're living for, right? In fact, Jesus said, take no thought for what drives the people in that kingdom. Don't spend your life trying to figure out how to get ahead. Don't spend your life trying to climb some ladder. Don't, don't spend your life trying to figure out what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear and what you're gonna, where you're going to live. God knows that you need those things. Here's what you need to spend your life thinking about. Seek first. What? Seek as a priority the kingdom of God and the advancement of his righteousness. And the problem with that is you're not doing that in a physical kingdom that's marked by those things. You're actually doing it in whatever little kingdom of the world God has placed you in. And right now you're here, but but 10 years from now, some of you may be in all kinds of other kingdoms around the world. And when you get there, those kingdoms have values. Those kingdoms have things that create the idea of significance and success and enjoyment and pleasure. And what happens often to a light bearer, to a dawn treader that comes into that kingdom, is their heart gets divided. And they start living for some of these things. And James says, let me, let me give you a word for that. Okay, let me give you a word for a person who does that. Adulterer. That's stunning. Can I just be real honest with us this morning? There might be some of us in this room, and if James were sitting down and having a cup of coffee with you, he would say to you, can I tell you a truth that you don't want to hear? And he might look at you and say, here's the truth about you. You're an adulterer. You are involved in an affair with the world that you were supposed to go and represent the new kingdom to. I mean, this is why I'm taking the time right now at the end of chapter 1 to stop and get us ready for this because I want to make sure that our hearts are ready to receive what James is actually saying to us. So what's going to keep me from a divided heart? What's going to keep me from a disloyal life? And the answer is there is a means. There is a gracious provision that God has given. 
in verse 5 of chapter 1, look at the provision. It's wisdom from above. This is where it comes from, right? This is its source. Look, look down, if you will, and, and notice in verse 18, this wisdom from above. James says, let me give you another word for it. It's wisdom from above, but let me tell you something else about it. It is the word of truth. This is talking about its nature. This is in verse 18. And, and, and James says, let me remind you, temptation and sin produce something. They produce death. This word of truth produces something. It produces life. And so it's the word of truth in verse 21. It's implanted. It's the word implanted in you. It's the word that you now can understand and you now can obey because the Spirit of God has planted in you this word just like Ezekiel and Jeremiah talked about when they talked about the new covenant. So, so he's giving you this incredible means. It's wisdom. It's, it's the word of truth. It's implanted in your life. It's the perfected law. It's the law of God that Jesus perfected and is now perfecting you. It's, it's the law that liberates you from sin and death. It's the law that gives you the freedom now to do what James is saying God has called us to do in the little kingdoms of the world. And then it's, an, it's the royal law. This is uh, in chapter 2. It's the royal law. It's the law of the new kingdom. If you want to know what the law of the kingdom is, go to its constitution. If you want to know what the law of a kingdom is, go to its legal documents. Well, if you want to know what the law of the new kingdom is, there is a place where that law is articulated. So what is this thing that is wisdom and the word of truth and the word implanted and the perfected law that perfects us and liberates us? What is the royal law? And James says, I'm going to tell you plainly what it is. It is the scripture. And he says it two times in the book, in chapter 2, verse 8, and in chapter 2, verse 23. It is the Scripture. And so here's the point I want to make. What are you going to do about the Scripture? What are you going to do about the Scripture? Because this is where James is going, right? James says, let me tell you what to do with the Scripture. You need to use the Scripture to develop a resilient faith. You need to develop the scriptures in your life. You need to use the scriptures. You need to trust the scriptures to develop a resilient faith. Because when you get into the little kingdom that you are are sent to, and you are now the royal ambassador of the big kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, what's going to happen in the little kingdom is you're going to face trials. And you're going to need to trust that word so that you can endure the trial. You need a resilient faith. And then he says you need to use that word not just develop a resilient faith. You need to use that word to develop a resisting faith. And beginning in verse 13 and going all the way through verse 18, he says to you, not only are you going to face trials in the little kingdoms of the world, those kingdoms have a lot of things that are going to tempt you. And if you are going to remain true to the ethics and the values and the priorities of the kingdom that you're supposed to be modeling in that little kingdom, you're going to need to develop a resisting faith. And the only way you're going to develop a resisting faith is when you have enablements from the word of truth that brought you life. 
And then James says you're going to have to have a committed faith. What does a committed faith look like? It looks like this. It is swift to hear that word. It's eager to receive that word. It's very slow to speak against that word. And it's even slower to respond in anger that doesn't work the righteousness of God. And by the time James gets done, he says this, this this kind of committed faith looks deeply into the word of God and it responds to what the word says. It responds to what the word says. And then he ends the chapter this way. He said a resilient faith, a resisting faith, and a committed faith end somewhere. They end in a display of a gracious faith. It is a faith that you can actually see. It's not just words that come out of your mouth. It's not a confession that you make about God. It's not like you just get into this little kingdom and you start telling everybody that you believe in God. And that's it. You're actually supposed to display the genuineness of your commitment to the king of the new kingdom. That's why we've been talking about the kind of faith that makes a difference to a dying world is a faith that is wholehearted. It is single-focused, and it is fully trusting. Can we say that together? It is wholehearted. It is single-focused. It is fully trusting. I mean, every time you happen to pass the book of James in your Bible reading, I want you to remember that little phrase. A living faith is wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting. And it, it's more than words. It's more than just correct belief about God. James actually looks at people like us and he says, all right, you show me your faith, but only use your words. Prove that you have faith with only words. And the implication is you can't. All you can do is tell me what you believe. And you're going, but I'm telling you I believe the right things. And James is going to say, well, listen, you're in good company. Actually, you're in bad company because even the devils believe what you believe, and they tremble. I mean, think about that. Even the devils believe what you say you believe about God, but they actually display their belief. They tremble because they know what is coming. You, on the other hand, display nothing. All you've got is words. At least the demons have actions that go with their words. They acknowledge the very thing you say about God, and it produces abject terror in them. And in you, it produces a willingness to go commit spiritual adultery as though those words had no impact on your life. I mean, this is where James is going. James says, let me show you my faith through my works. And oh, by the way, I'm in good company. I actually am in line with God's five friends that are in the book. There's, there's a friend of God named Abraham, and there's another friend of God named Rahab, and there's another friend of God called the prophets, and there, there are, 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 there's another friend of God called Job, and there's a final friend of God called Elijah, and they're all doing what I'm saying. They're all displaying what they say they believe by the works of their life. And so here's, here's where I want to end. 
our time this morning, and, and it's very simple. If you had a friend that came into your life and had been fully supportive of you for a long time, I mean, every time you needed something, this friend was there. You needed, you needed money, and this friend supplied it. You, I mean, for, for years, this friend has been a loyal friend. And one day, this friend calls you up and says, look, I really want to talk to you. I want to have a conversation. I want to ask you for something. I've never asked you for anything, but I want to ask you for something. And so you go to the coffee shop, and you meet this friend, and you're eager because, I mean, this is a person who's invested for years in you. And this person sits down and says to you, I want you to listen and I want you to receive what I'm about to tell you. James is that friend. James is that friend. Over the next four chapters, James is going to say, I want you to I want you to res, I want you to listen and I want you to receive what God has asked me to tell you about you. And I'm just letting you know as a church and I know this because it's been at work in my own heart. James has some hard things to say to us as a church. He has some hard things to say to us as Christians. I mean, there have been times as I've been working ahead in the book and I'm going, how am I going to say this? Are you sure? (laughs) You sure you want me to say it? James is going to tell us some hard things and I'm, I'm getting us ready for that because what happens is a lot of times people want the kind of preaching that's entertaining. They want the kind of preaching that's got like four little points that all start with the same letter and full of application. I just want this to, I just want it to be practical. James isn't going to be practical. James is going to come into your life and he's going to get right personal with you. Right? Practicality is what the Holy Spirit brings through his word. James is going to bring penetrating truth to you. And so as I preach this to you, I'm just going to lay out what James is saying. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to bury it. I'm I'm going to try to put it in all of its context, but I'm letting you know because I've been in it and it's been hitting me extremely hard that James is our friend and he is going to say some very, very direct things to us as believers because of the mission that we're entitled to do. Remember I started with the story of C.S. Lewis? Well, there's a very sad part of that story and it's in the final book of the series. One of the four children, one of the high queens of Narnia, Susan, never comes back to Narnia. And at the very end of the Chronicles, there's a statement that C.S. Lewis makes in the book that explains why Susan never comes back to Narnia. And the reason she never comes back to Narnia is because she is no longer a friend of Narnia. That's how Lewis described it in the, in the story. She stopped being a friend of Narnia and has become much more enamored with the things of her world, lipstick, engagement, social items. And I remember just reading that and thinking, boy, that's exactly where James is going. There's a man in the Bible whose name is Demas. 
who is just like that. You know, folks, as we let James speak truth to our hearts, can I just, can I just ask you as a congregation to pray for me? And can we just pray for one another? And here's what we need to pray for, that we would receive what James has to say as words coming from a benevolent friend. And two, that we would actually respond to them. Now, whatever James tells us, instead of getting angry and resistant, that we would just say to the Lord, Lord, you said you would give more grace in chapter 4, verse 6. You said you would give more grace. I need that grace right now. I need the enablement to receive this, and I need the enablement to respond to this so that I am swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And folks, if we'll just do that as a church, James will be one of the most amazingly profitable books we could ever read together and ever study together. Would you pray that in your own heart this morning? Would you pray with me as we pray together?